the Joint Chiefs of Staff has all of its members for the first time in months. But what will happen to the rest of the nominees currently in limbo due to a promotions blockade? Produced by Defense News and Military Times, this is the Early Bird Brief. Each morning, we bring you the defense and national security news of the day. There is readiness issues, and that's the whole point. We have a really dangerous world. After months, all the nation's top uniform leaders of the military branches have been confirmed by the Senate, but each leader has their own challenges and goals for their respective service. What does it all mean for our defense and security? You'll find out. I'm your host, Simone Perez. Today is November 3rd, 2023. First up, after months of uncertainty and holds on military nominations, the Joint Chiefs of Staff has all of its members confirmed. The Senate confirmed the nominees to lead the Air Force and Navy and confirmed the number two leader of the Marine Corps. The votes come after months of Alabama Senator Tommy Tuberville's blockade of military nominations over the Pentagon's abortion travel policy. The senator from Alabama. Object. Objection is heard. In a historic first, Admiral Lisa Franchetti was confirmed as the chief of naval operations. Navy readiness is anchored to family readiness. And just as I am grateful to my own family, I am grateful to all our incredible Navy families for the support they provide to their sailors every day. Franchetti is the first woman to ever serve as the Navy's top officer and also the first woman to serve on the Joint Chiefs of Staff. Defense News Naval Warfare reporter Megan Eckstein joins us today to talk about Franchetti, her past positions, and challenges for her service going forward. So Megan, who is now Chief of Naval Operations, Admiral Franchetti. What has her career progression looked like? Admiral Lisa Franchetti um, is a surface warfare officer, and she's had actually a really interesting career leading up to her being selected as the next Chief of Naval Operations. She joined the Navy at a time when females were really just being allowed into certain types of jobs. It was right around the time the Naval Academy opened up to women And so her early assignments were actually not on proper warships. Um, She got her start on an oiler and a destroyer tender um, just because those were the jobs that were open to her at the time. Um, But she worked her way up. She commanded a destroyer. She commanded a carrier strike group um, and just really along the way ticked off a lot of firsts um, for women in the Navy. And so, you know, culminating in being the first female chief of naval operations and the first woman to sit on the Joint Chiefs of Staff. Um, And so really just breaking a lot of glass along the way. I've also heard from a handful of sources how interesting her background is in terms of the types of people that she's had to collaborate with and how that really sets her up for success in this job. Uh, She previously led naval forces in Korea, as well as naval forces over in Europe through the U.S. Sixth Fleet job. Um, And in those positions, had to work very closely with allies and partners, which is a big component of being chief of naval operations. Um, She also had a job on the joint staff, working strategy plans and policy, which obviously, you know, that's one of her hats as CNO is sitting on the joint staff, as well as, you know, in her time most recently as the vice chief of naval operations, having to work with her counterparts in the other services, having to work with lawmakers up on the Hill, having to work with the White House. Um, so what I've heard from a handful of current and former Navy folks is just sort of that well-roundedness of her history is really going to set her up for success in this job as the chief of naval operations. So what challenges does she inherit from her predecessor 
but also what are her goals for the service, her aspirations, not just fixing problems. Well, the most recent chief of naval operations, Admiral Mike Gilday, got started on two big initiatives. One, he was trying to focus on the readiness of the current fleet rather than building a future fleet. And he was also very focused on laying the groundwork for a manned, unmanned hybrid fleet. Both of those, he, you know, made good progress during his four years. But Admiral Franchetti will certainly be the one to implement this vision of a manned, unmanned hybrid fleet. Um, So it will be interesting to see, you know, how much of a focus she puts on that. In terms of the readiness versus shipbuilding, you know, there's a constant tension that um, service chiefs face in terms of how much to spend on today's force versus how much to invest in tomorrow's force. What's really interesting for Admiral Franchetti is that we constantly hear about this 2027 time frame for, you know, China potentially attacking Taiwan. That will be at the tail end of Admiral Franchetti's four-year tenure as CNO. And so it'll be very interesting to see how she chooses to prepare the force for, you know, what's obviously not predetermined, but sort of this timeline Um, when experts think that China could make a move, um, and how does the fact that she will be in charge in 2027 weigh on her decisions? Um, There's a lot of other interesting challenges she could face. Um, You know, on top of unmanned, uh, we're going to kind of see more of this JADC2, this Joint All-Domain Command and Control um, vision come to life. Uh, She'll be implementing a lot of things like that to connect manned systems, unmanned systems, you know, under the water, up in the air, on the surface. Um, And so she'll be in charge of executing and sort of making that all operational. Um, And this is all coming at a time when, you know, recruiting and retention is difficult. All of these personnel expenses are getting more and more costly. Um, So she really will have some budget challenges that she faces as she's trying to handle this whole range Um, We don't have a good sense of what her priorities are yet, only because during her time as acting chief of naval operations, she wasn't really allowed to put together a guidance document. So I'm sure we'll be hearing more from her in the coming days and weeks in terms of where her energy is, where her focus is, and what we could expect to see in the coming future. And I will note that she still has one very short-term challenge she faces. Um, While it's a great step in the right direction that Admiral Franchetti has been confirmed as CNO, she still does not have anybody confirmed in the number two spot in the Navy. Um, Admiral Jim Kilby has been nominated for the job, but until he's confirmed by the Senate and put in as VCNO, um, Admiral Franchetti is still essentially doing two jobs um, and will be stretched quite thin until she has a number two put in place. Thanks, Megan. As we said, there were several key confirmation votes. The Senate also confirmed General David Alvin as Air Force Chief of Staff. For more on Alvin's career and his new job, Air Force Times editor Rachel Cohen joins the episode too. So Rachel, much like Megan's questions, who is General Alvin? What has he done throughout his career that led him to become the Air Force Chief of Staff? So first off, he was the Vice Chief of Staff um, before he was nominated to be the top officer. Um, So he's already got, you know, multiple years of experience in that role as kind of the right-hand man to... General C.Q. Brown, who's now the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, he started out in the Air Force. He's an Air Force Academy grad, started out as a mobility pilot, and then started hopping around in different roles that you know were more strategy and policy focused. So he worked on the Joint Staff. He has played a really big role in the Air Force's attempt to tackle its recruiting crisis, um, you know, looking at different policies that it could tweak to get more people in 
And he's he's really just seen as, you know, a, a real, you know, cerebral, you know, smart guy, not afraid to debate things, not afraid to listen to people, you know, has has had a really big hand in pretty much all of the budget discussions of the last few years. So he's he's got a really good handle on, you know, where the Air Force is going, what it sees as the future um, of air warfare and, you know, Biden's nomination and the Senate's confirmation of him indicate that they're they're on board with with that. What problems does he face at the start of his tenure though? And of course, what are his goals? A lot of a lot of his goals are likely going to revolve around kind of keeping the status quo from CQ Brown. For the past, you know, several years, there's been a growing push to uh, modernize the entire Air Force inventory, um, you know, retire the fleets that are uh, th- that they see as, you know, too old to be relevant and survivable in future wars. So he will kind of spearhead the next phase of that. You know, recruiting, again, is is a big problem. So the, the entire Air Force just missed its fiscal 23 recruiting goal. Um, it's the first time that the entire Air Force has missed that number since 1999. Um, so really, you know, making a more concerted effort to, you know, get the word out to people who might want to join and get more of those people across the finish line and into uniform. You know, lots of quality of life issues, um, you know, all the, all the sort of standard, you know, service member pay, uh, family quality of life, base housing, he'll still have to tackle. And the Air Force is also starting to take a new look at how it deploys people around the world. Um, he's going to have a big hand in, you know, carrying that out and shaping those policies so that, you know, the Air Force hopefully can get to a point where it's a, it's a steadier state of, you know, training and then deploying um, in phases instead of just kind of go, go, going, you know, everybody deploying all the time, you know, getting burnt out. Um, you know, they're, they're really looking for a, a happier, a happier sort of balance with that. And with Marine Corps Commandant General Eric Smith still in the hospital after a medical emergency, the Senate voted to confirm his second in command. Senators rushed to confirm Lieutenant General Christopher Mahoney as the assistant commandant. But with General Smith still in the hospital after a reported heart attack, Mahoney will also perform the duties of the commandant. Smith has been juggling the top two jobs as well, while waiting for the Senate to confirm him to the post, also to confirm an assistant. At a press briefing yesterday, Deputy Defense Secretary Kathleen Hicks alluded to Smith's workload as a possible contribution to his heart issue. We have seen tragic effects of that stress, but in a day-to-day sense, we've also seen the stress at the individual human level. Um, And I think that's been well communicated on Capitol Hill. Marine Corps Times reporter Irene Lowenson joins the episode today. Irene, first, could you just provide an update? Tell us what we know so far about General Smith's condition. Yeah, so General Eric Smith, the Marine Commandant, was hospitalized on Sunday evening following what the Marine Corps called a medical emergency. Some news outlets are reporting that General Smith suffered a heart attack, citing defense officials. DC Emergency Services told me that um, a man, that didn't say who, but a man, uh, went into cardiac arrest close to the Commandant's residence on Sunday evening. So right around the time and place that we know that that General Smith had his medical episode. So the Marine Corps said on Wednesday that General Smith is now in stable condition and is recovering in a hospital in D.C. But beyond that, the Marine Corps really has not 
released a lot of specifics citing medical privacy law and the family's wishes. And who is his second-in-command, Lieutenant General Mahoney? What has his career looked like? General Mahoney is a career aviator who has flown more than 5,000 hours in the A6, the F-5, the F-18, and the F-35. His call sign is Mo. As a general officer, he's, he's led in a variety of capacities. Um, most recently, he has had the very important job of Deputy Commandant for Programs and Resources, essentially the fiscal director of the Marine Corps, which is important. I mean, making sure that the Marine Corps' budget is, is okay, that's, that's, a, that's a huge task. And in that role, he's been a big supporter and defender of Force Design 2030, which is the modernization initiative that has attracted some criticism from retired Marines. He's um, been very much on the side of the, the previous commandant, General David Berger, and General Smith. Uh, in defending the necessity of that initiative. And with this confirmation, how will that impact the chain of command within the Marine Corps following General Smith's hospitalization? The chain of command in the Marine Corps was already a little unorthodox because of the hold on nominations. So the White House nominated General Mahoney in July for the assistant commandant role. But because of the hold on nominations, his nomination was stuck in Senate limbo. So that left General Smith as first the assistant commandant, and then once he got individually confirmed to be commandant, that left General Smith basically in the top two jobs of the Marine Corps at once. Now that General Mahoney has been confirmed as the assistant commandant, he'll kind of be in the same zone where he's the assistant commandant who's stepping in to act as commandant while General Smith recovers. He's also going to be doing two full-time jobs as once. I mean, not to mention the aspect of the commandant job that involves sitting on the Joint Chiefs. It does simplify the chain of command somewhat, because prior to General Mahoney's confirmation, Lieutenant General Karsten Heckel was stepping in um, following General Smith's hospitalization. And Lieutenant General Heckel was basically doing three jobs at once, because he was doing the commandant's job, and essentially the assistant commandant's job because there was no assistant commandant. And on top of that, he was the top Marine for the modernization initiative for combat development and integration. So there's now a Senate-confirmed leader who has fewer responsibilities and um, and is going to be long-term one of the top leaders in the Marine Corps headquarters. Thanks, Irene. It's unclear how the Senate will confirm the 300-plus military nominees. In an overnight session on Wednesday, Republican Senators Joni Ernst and Dan Sullivan, who are both veterans, introduced more than 60 nominees who they believed were qualified for their positions for votes. The deputy chairman of NATO, pretty important job. It's a three-star billet. It's empty. The deputy commanding general of U.S. Army Europe, really important job. Empty. Tuberville objected to quick consideration to everyone. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer said Wednesday that the Senate will consider a resolution that could allow the quick confirmation of other officers up for promotion. And now here's some other stories that we're hearing chirps about. The Air Force said it destroyed an unarmed intercontinental ballistic missile over the Pacific Ocean during a test launch early Wednesday morning. The service said the Minuteman 3 was terminated due to an anomaly during launch. 
A Gallup poll shared yesterday said that American support for Ukraine amid its war with Russia has fallen. 41% of Americans say the U.S. is doing too much to support Ukraine. The U.S. Army Medical Material Agency's Distribution Operations Center recently said it expects to distribute nearly 1.4 million doses of vaccine this flu season. And basketball coach Bobby Knight has died. Knight finished his career with 902 victories in 42 seasons at Army, Indiana, and Texas Tech. He was 83. And on this day in history in 2014, One World Trade Center officially opened in New York City. The new tower and the rest of the World Trade Center complex replaced the Twin Towers and surrounding complex, which were destroyed by terrorist attacks on September 11th. That's it for us this morning. To get more top stories and breaking news, go to defensenews.com EBB to subscribe to the Early Bird Brief newsletter. Please give us a like, rating, and a comment wherever you get your podcasts. And be sure to follow us on social media at Defense underscore News and at Military Times. The Early Bird Brief is hosted and produced by me, Zimone Z. Perez. Today's episode featured stories by Megan Eckstein, Irene Lowenson, and Rachel Cohen. Our editor-in-chief is Mike Bruce. Have a great day.